You are now listening to life, death, and making the most of what you've been given with Dr. B.J. Miller. Sit back and relax as Friends Health Connections Executive Director, Roxon Black, talks with Dr. Miller on his expertise and his latest book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. Okay, good afternoon. So I'm here today with Dr. B.J. Miller. B.J. Miller is a hospice and palliative medic medicine physician who has worked in many settings, inpatient, outpatient, hospice facility and home, and now sees patients and families at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. Miller speaks all over the country and beyond on the theme of living well in the face of death. He has been profiled in the New York Times and interviewed by Oprah, Tim Ferriss, Krista Tippett, and many others, and his new book is called A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. So, hello, BJ, and thank you. Thank you so much again for taking the time to do this. Um, my pleasure, Roxanne. Thank you. I wanted to start off by just asking if you could tell us about your own story and how you became a doctor, what led you to become a doctor. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I had not been interested in medicine and healthcare per se until I, I, until I was a patient myself. Uh, in college, I was injured in an electrical uh, accident on a, just screwing around on a commuter train and got badly burned and uh, lo- lost some limbs from that, both legs below the knee and my left arm. And so that, that was my big brush with mortality, but it was also my entree into, into the medical world, albeit from a patient's point of view. But I, I got sort of turned on to the whole craft of medicine that way. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was, I was an undergraduate. I, I didn't study. I, did, I didn't do any science as an undergraduate. But after college, after I graduated, I, I you know, I had to, I was trying to find a way to, to put my experiences to good use and, uh, and medicine lit up as a way to do that. So, so off I went I, I, and gave med- medical school a try with the idea that either, you know, either I wouldn't like it and I'd stop or I couldn't do it and I'd stop. But in the end, I made it through and found my way to palliative care and that's what really lit me up. In fact, I was, I was considering getting out of medicine altogether deep into medical school. Um, but as an intern, I, found, I discovered palliative care, and that was a, a fast and quick love. And so off I went. And with palliative care, what, uh, well, well, let's get into it and, and about your book. First of all, the book is incredibly comprehensive and mm. would be valuable to anybody. So thank you for writing this. I think it's so needed, and I'm so glad to have – I'm so grateful to even have a copy. So thank you. Thank you, Roxanne. I'm so grateful you read it. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. Before we get into palliative care, I want to ask you about life itself. How do you define a life well-lived? Yeah, it's a it's a great and big question. Um, I think, you know, I think for myself. I mean, I think that's a personal question. I mean, I think across we are, 
uh, species that we share a lot in common, a ton in common. I mean, so much in common, it's stunning. And we find a way to focus on our differences, but that's a, that's a slightly different conversation. But um, but I, I kind of think of it, so so it's subjective. But so for me, and, and it kind of rings true with patients and families I've worked with, it's sort of like it's self-referential. Have I made good on my potential? Have I... Um, dis- found a way to be interested in life? Have I found a way to be engaged in life, including, importantly, the hard stuff? I think, you know, for example, if you set about trying to avoid pain at all costs in your life, you would, you would accidentally avoid a lot of life. So it's not about, for me personally, it's not about pleasure or happiness per se, although I love those things too. I guess I'm more interested in the full spectrum of it all. I want to feel every feeling I can feel. I want to think every thought I can think. And as importantly, I want to do those things. I want to be in my body. I want to be, I want to get out of bed in the morning so that I can participate in the world around me and link myself to the world around me, not see myself as separate or other than. So I guess that's, I guess that's my answer to your question, Roxanne, is it's this, it's have I found a way to care, to love, to be loved, to engage? Have I put my own shame and embarrassment aside and tried things that are hard? Um, have I made mistakes? I mean, I think a full life is full of mistakes. But have I learned from them and have I forgiven myself or been forgiven by whoever I need to, to seek that from, et cetera? I mean, these are the kinds of themes that for me are a full life. It certainly has nothing to do with the acquisition of stuff, as fun as that can be. But I, I, I don't see that anywhere in the definition of a full life. That's such a beautiful answer. And that's why I could listen to you forever because this whole topic ties in to the book, even though it's about palliative care and a beginner's guide to the end, I think it's also about just life itself. It ties into parenting. You know, as a parent, Mm -hmm. I try to encourage my daughter when she's afraid to do something, those are the things she should push herself to do. Because if we let Mm -hmm. fear hold us back, you know, the other side of fear is this great feeling of accomplishment and success and you know, there's great satisfaction in conquering our fears. So your book and your words are as much about living well as they are about facing death, I think. Oh, thanks, Roxanne. I would say, just to refine, I mean, I'd say those two things are totally linked. In, in my worldview, those, those two things are very much linked. So I appreciate you saying that. They are. Now, as far as death, what do you feel that people can do to make death less scary and more knowable? Well, there are a couple, there's a couple layers to your answer. I mean, and, and, and this subject's huge, and there are a gazillion on-ramps to it. You know, you could, if you're just, you know, if you're, you know, there's, there's the whole advanced care planning and doing, you know, doing your, your, your living will, setting up a trust, you know, doing the sort of clerical work that both protects you and promotes the kind of care you are seeking um, and also protects those who will survive you. 
mean, that kind of work is very, very important. It's very practical and clerical and for, on some level for some of us kind of boring. It feels kind of reductive, you know, to take a big thing called life and try to put it into a form. Well, it's tricky, but it's what we got and it's really, really important. And we can talk about that sort of practical aspect. Um, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. I mean, I think you, you bringing up too, you're bringing up sort of the idea of fear of coping with it. I mean, I think in general, our fear of death is the mother of all fears. I mean, I think it's, it's the big one. And on some level, I think, you know, it, 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 death, I don't know that death is knowable. As a hospice doc, having been around a lot of people who have, who have died, I've, I've seen dying. I've almost died myself. I've seen that aspect of where you're still alive, but your body is trying to go. Now, that's, that's one thing. Um, but the idea of being dead and a fear of obliteration, a fear of being no more, that's deep, deep-seated stuff. I mean, to be clear, you know, so, yes, denial is an issue, but, but really we humans are, are, are pretty well hardwired to run away from any threat to our existence, fight, flight, or freeze. I mean, that's, that's what our hormonal bodies will have us do. So on some level, I think the idea with uh, preparing yourself for death on this level has very much to do with facing your, your fear, facing your mortality. And if fear doesn't, isn't the quite right word for you, well, find whatever it is. Find whatever's either strangely fascinating or oddly repelling about it and look at it. I mean, this is a closet to open up, in part because if you're gripped by fear through your life, that's a great way to shrink your life down. That's a, that's a way to miss out on a ton of life because you'd be afraid to try. If you're for always for, forever afraid to die, you would be pretty afraid to try things. Life is risky. Life is dangerous. And so one, one idea is you know, have to begin to have some relationship to death so that it can be a companion for you rather than this thing that uh, holds you down, holds you back. So the fear of our own death is something to actually look at. It's not something to run from. When you find yourself afraid of it, that's exactly when you step into it. You look into it. You don't run away from it. That's a really, really important key thing. And again, that just frees up a ton of life, and therefore you're less likely to get to your deathbed filled with regrets. Uh, so that's huge. Um, and you asked a great question about sort of practicing for this. Like I said, I don't know that any of us get to know what death is. I mean, depending on how, what your belief systems are, I take nothing away from people who have died and come back and have seen something about death and have very strong feelings about reincarnation, etc. But in my experience, I don't, you know, we may be able to get close to death. We may be able to find some memory of it even, perhaps. But I find it a very hard thing to know. Um, but how to get there? Well, I think if you start turning your, you know, tuning in, death is everywhere. I think as you walk through your life, I think loss of any kind is a good proxy for death. Loss of stuff, loss of friendships, relationships, loss of identity. You and I know this. You know, when, when, when someone gets sick or uh, there's some trauma, you know, you're changed. You're altered by those experiences uh, in a myriad in myriad ways. 
but there's a there's a mourning for the the identity you had that you you lost to become a patient, for example, or to become more dependent on others or on dependent on equipment, etc. So there are losses all over the place. Any one day, the loss of a day, the end of a weekend, I feel a kind of a little melancholy on Sundays. I just the, my weekend just died. You know, <laughs> there are. There are just, it's everywhere. Walk down the street and look at a tree, see leaves falling, that's death. You know, so these, if you turn yourself, tune yourself, tune into loss, tune into how life is shape-shifting all the time and becoming something, but also leaving something else behind, well, then you begin to have some sort of relationship with, with death. And I think that can be very, very instructive. And very very helpful, and we can uh, we can talk more about that. But that, there's there's some thoughts for you. On the flip side of that, there's gratitude, I guess. Right? It makes you grateful for that exactly. moment with that leaf before it falls, the beauty of it. Right? Exactly. But marveling yeah. at these things that you may otherwise take for granted, I guess. Exactly. I mean, I think that's that's another way of putting, I mean, for me, this is sort of my, what all this is teaching me and pointing me to, what my patients teach me. I mean, I think for me, the mission really is to appreciate what I have, preferably while I still have it. So I don't take everything for granted. Uh, that does me and my heart some good, but it also makes me a better, kinder person uh, to others. And uh, I think it's a public service. You're doing a public – if you can find a way to love life, if you can find a way to appreciate what we have, uh, I, I almost think that's like a public service. You are doing a kindness to others because just what it does to your own affect, how you are as a person, how you behave towards others, how you relate to other people's pains and joys, etc. That's a that's a – an incredible your own your own gratitude is an amazing gift to give others, and that brings up the question too as you start seeing the commonalities among us and the fact that we all have this condition of having to try to love this thing that is going to end. We have to love this life, knowing it's going to end, knowing it's going to go away. We have all every human who's ever lived has this challenge, this riddle in common. It's a huge thing to have in common. And therefore, it's a source of connection. You know, Roxanne, you and I have spent, what, a couple, you know, not that, you know, we spent a little time together in Connecticut. Not all that much time, really, as the clock goes. But we've shared the same space and the same planet at the same time. We've had shared experiences already. We've, we've traded, uh, exchanged emotion and thought. And pretty quickly, just like that, you know, we're on some level entwined. Because of, because of this theme. Oh, sorry, that's Maisie, my dog, barking. That's um, great. <laughs> but, but anyway, so she's probably telling me to shut up because I'm rambling. But that, that so anyway, there, there's a little uh, rumination on the, the gratitude that you bring up, but also the public service that that provides. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder, you know, if you get on an elevator, what led those groups, that group of people to be in that elevator at the same time, the chances of that particular group, and sometimes our paths are meant to cross that we don't realize, right? We don't, we don't realize why, but I think sometimes just 
there are reasons that we don't always know. Maybe yeah. it's smiling at someone along that path exchange and changing their journey. Or like you said, we were we just spent a little bit of time together, but you're even the sm- short time dialogue, dialoguing made me look at life differently. So it's fu- it's amazing how our how sometimes someone comes into your life and just changes your life in some profound way, even in a short amount of time. Yes, so so true, and I think that's happening all the time on varying planes, sometimes extremely subtly or subconsciously, um, but sometimes very obviously. But I think that's kind of the joy. I think, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, self-awareness and conviction. I think we all like people have conviction. They know what they, who they are. They know what they want. They know, yeah. I, okay, well, that, that is a, when knowing is honest, I'm all for it too. But if I'm being honest much of the time, there's all sorts of stuff going on that I don't understand, that I don't know. And uh, that's another thing that death done for me is kind of put me in front of, uh, made me acquaint myself with mystery and just not knowing. I just don't get to know everything. And that's, that's all right. I, I, I used to, that used to bother me, but that's now just a source of fascination. And you're darn right. Well, and I, I can't say, I don't know, I don't know about, I, I can't say from personal experience whether I'm certain there are higher meanings to, to things or high, a higher purpose or a, a, a grand design. I may have my own hunches about that. But even if there isn't, the idea that we're just sort of bopping around out in space together, these pieces of wet concrete that we are, that we're mutable, that, we're, that we are affected. These things sometimes in our American language, you know, in our idioms, like, that sounds like, like, you know, like wishy-washy or mealy-mouth or you don't know who you are. Or blah, blah. No, I think that's a very honest and beautiful place. We are, uh, we are affectable. One of the things I'm most proud of in my life is scar tissue that accumulated from various injuries and insults and losses and whatever else is that I'm still kind of soft, that I can still be changed by an experience. I, I want that. And that gives, it may be, it may mean, that may change my relationship to control, but that's fine by me. I, I love that. And my day can turn on, just like you say, Someone holding the door open for me or, vice, or me for them, there's a certain slight second of eye contact with a little smile, that can completely change my day. And, what, and I'm happy. That, that's fascinating to me. That may sound like a vulnerability to some, but I think that's just a fascinating, wonderful thing. It is, and that's beautiful. Um, when we were talking about fear and different emotions, and avoiding certain emotions, avoiding the pain. Mm -hmm. But I think pain is unavoidable. We, We all go through some deep pain in our lives in one way or another. Something happens that's going to cause pain. So what part does pain and suffering play in the span of human emotions? Well... I think it's essential. I, I um, can you? I mean, put it in a different way. Can you imagine what a boring person 
you or I would be if we never suffered, if we had no pain. <laughs> you know, the, 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 you know you're, you are, you've just lopped off an enormous part of the human experience. Um, so, you know, there's just one thing of it, just, just the fact of it being a, a, a real thing, and I don't want to miss that on real things. But more, more to the point of your question, I think, Roxanne, is, you know, that suffering, it's the very, it's the, it's the feeling that whatever puts us at pain, that puts us in touch with all that we can't change, all that we can't control where we need to just submit to forces greater than ourselves, where sometimes we just need to like, wade through. And sometimes we need to be annihilated. And in a way, pain is a foil for all the beauty in life. I am much more aware of how, of sort of life's splendor and the amazement, the amazingness of life in general I mean, just think about it. It's insane. Like how, how has life on this one little planet, look what has happened. Look what's just looked outside and all the different species. That, I mean, it's just a stunning, stunning creation that we're part of. And um, I don't know that I would take such notice of those beauties if I didn't know something of a depre- some, some sort of de- like, uh, deprivation it's the thing that primes my, the suffering is the thing that primes me to pay attention and to see, look for the counterpoints, the beauties, the connections, the lessons, etc. So I think, in other words, a long-winded way of saying that suffering, pain, um, they're just very good teachers. They're great foils. And uh, I'll say one more thing about that. Sometimes I hear myself talk and others, and you can almost, you almost can hear like, being enamored with pain on some level. I want to be clear, like, I think there's plenty of pain in any life if you're paying attention. The first thing we do when we come out of the womb is cry. There's no, you know, this is (laughs) elemental stuff. I would never believe someone if they told me they'd never experienced pain or suffering. I would just accuse them of not paying close enough attention. Um, So it's all around. You don't need to go invent pain. This is not a plea for... Um, creating pain just because it's such a good teacher. The fact is, it just happens. It's out there. And therefore, because it's real, um, let's look for how to work with it. And this is, as best I can tell, how to work with it. Yeah. Um, when my, my mom, I lost my mom. And um, I remember being afraid to feel because I was afraid of the depth of pain I would feel and the depth of emotion. And I thought I would be swallowed up by it. How could I, like I kept trying to, in some ways, avoid feeling too deeply because I was afraid that it would, I would never come up. And then I said to myself, or someone might've said to me, it's not a bottomless pit. Let yourself fall. Let yourself fall. And then there's no place to go but up. And mm-hmm. so I let myself, you know, I, I did what I needed to do. I cried my eyes out and I fell apart. And, and I remember saying to myself, this feeling, like, immerse your, let yourself immerse yourself in this feeling right now because it is, a feeling that's going to make you 
grow from this experience and that you'll be able to relate to other people's pains and you'll be there is going to be some positive huge growth that comes out of letting yourself fall to the bottom sort of mm-hmm. and i do think there's no way through there's no way over pain if you don't go through it there's no way you know if you try to push it down and avoid feeling it's going to always try to pop up so in a way you have to let yourself go through it in order to move past and feel and move forward you know after it yeah yeah i agree with that i mean i think you you ignore it in your long term in short term it's almost like like i have endless sympathy for uh addiction you know you find these these ways you know seemingly around pain and uh you know gosh the relief of pain is a very magical thing you know um but you do yourself a long-term disservice because as you say roxanne that, that stuff doesn't go the pain doesn't really go away it just goes and hangs out in your spleen or somewhere in your spine you know it, sets up shop somewhere and it's just going to keep poking you if you don't at some point deal with it or it'll shut you down and you'll just get real scarred down and numbed out and either way you know i just so it's a long-term loser um you know that said there's a time and a place like i too i, I my sister died and the pain was just too great for me to really address i never you know, it took me a long time to look at it i just you know the body's also pretty smart, and there is a, there is a utility to some amount of de- denial and compartmentalization, et cetera, in the short term. You know, that, that that can be a very important piece of this process. You may need you know there's your body again is smart and will kind of let in the trauma on some level when it uh, when it can handle it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, let's you know let's just acknowledge what you and i both experienced which is the impulse to not feel it and the attractiveness of numbness on some level um and i think we both know that at some point you gotta you gotta deal with it i will just say one more thing about this like in my example with my sister i regret the kind of overly kind of pulling myself up from the bootstraps kind of thing I, I regret that I just took on that, you know, dust yourself up and off and keep moving kind of thing. I didn't give myself, even in private, I didn't give myself time to to feel the loss early on. And it feels like like a real, I felt like a, in retrospect, in a way, a real mistake. I lost, I missed out on, like, on some level, missing my sister is very much the same thing as loving my sister, which is very much related to feeling her presence in my life. And I shut all that down on some of our best as I could for a while. And in some way kind of retarded that growth, that that relationship between her and me that could keep going. And I shut it down in the name of sort of uh, of this, the, of this uh, sort of... Um, you know, trying to avoid the pain. In the end, I ended up just avoiding her. And uh, eventually I got there, but 
anyway, it's, it's tricky stuff. It ain't easy stuff. But one way or another, that pain, that grief, that sorrow, you should find a way to dance with it because it's going to dance with you. You know, it's a big, big force. So ignore it at your peril. That's right. What can people do to continue to make meaning in their lives after being diagnosed with a terminal illness? Well, I think the answer for so much of this stuff is to to not separate, to, to remember that being sick, being vulnerable, being disabled, being dependent, and eventually dying, those are all on the spectrum of normal life. You know, I think it's very useful to remind ourselves that we're never fully independent. We always need each other on some level, even if it's to make your shoes or whatever it is. We need each other. And so I want to soften the blow. Part of my, part for me, part of this work is softening the blow of when you become sick. It's not like you leave. It can feel this way because of some of the systems we've set up, but you're not leaving one world to join another. You're not leaving the world of independence to join the world of dependence. No, you're just on the, it's on the same spectrum of life that you've ever been on, of needing each other, of needing others, of having limitations yourself, etc. So one thing is to sort of demystify illness as this anomaly or this aberration in life. It is a continuation of very normal life. So that's one thing. I think part of we suffer from our constructs, and that's one construct. It's sort of myth of independence that I really want to sort of break up a little bit so you don't feel like you have to fall so far when you do get sick. But anyway, that's sort of a preamble. But back to your question. So when you're there, when you are finding yourself uh, with a chronic or terminal illness, I think, you know, on some level you can let it sort of quicken your, your thoughts, quicken your actions. Once you come to terms with the limitations of your body and the limitations of time, well, then it behooves you to prioritize and make decisions because you're not going to be able to do everything. So where do I point my attention and what do I let go of? And just by that process alone, you will be engaging meaning-making because part of the process of prioritizing your time and energy is asking yourself, what brings me meaning? What do I find meaningful now? You know, when I was alive and walking around the planet and uh, had no illness, et cetera, maybe the world looked one way. But now that I'm sick, how does it look to me now? What's important to me now? Therefore, in other words, what is meaningful to me now? That, is a, that question is always relevant and in some ways even more relevant when you're facing limitations, when you're facing uh, a clock ticking down. So... Uh, I think think of it as an extension of, of of life as it ever has been, just with a little act, a little extra oomph to kind of to get yourself right as quickly as you can because time is short. Um, so anyway, those are some thoughts. There's another huge subject we could talk more about too. And like you say, it's it's really you know a lot of these a lot of this relates to life itself. In essence, we all have a terminal illness. Because exactly. none of us are going to live forever. So exactly. asking these questions at any point would help us make the most of life. Like you touched on something earlier in the conversation about material things don't mean much to you. 
And I think if we could take a step back and look at our lives that we all have a limited period, what makes us happy? What could we do with the gifts we've been given or the challenges that we've been given and the lessons we've learned to make our lives as meaningful as possible? And yes, material things are needed. You need, a, you know, hopefully a roof over your head, and <laughs> if possible. But if we could really look at the essence of why we're here and make our decisions based on that and based on the fact that none of us have forever, then I think it makes life so much more meaningful as a whole, whether or not you are labeled with a di- uh, terminal illness at any given time. That's right. I'm, 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 I'm with you. And in some ways, that moment of diagnosis, while it can be shocking, of course, but on some level, we should all find a way to get to this sort of, I like this, it sounds, might sound a little tidy, but it's true. Like, I see people in my clinic who really suffer with the why me? You know, why, I, hey, I did everything right. Why do I have this cancer diagnosis? Um, and Un, you know, no, again, no shaming. Each of us develops in our own way over time. But, but to me, whenever I hear that question, I, you know, and depending on how well I know the person, I want to say, why not you? You know, it's not like, like you said, the, if it weren't this diagnosis, it would be another. It's not on no one's list of possibilities to live forever. So, so I don't take away the grief that goes with a diagnostic moment, but in this sort of existential plane, yeah, illness happens. Why not you? (laughs) If it weren't this, it would be something else. In other words, like you're saying, this is a continuum, and the sooner we think about what gives meaning to our lives and how to make make the best use of ourselves in this life that we have while we have it, you know, those are questions ideally you're asking throughout your life. And the moment of illness is just another sort of branch in that very same road, uh, not a detour. Um, I know we have limited time left, so I just want to ask you about caregivers and relationships Mm -hmm. in the face of a terminal illness. I know in your book you cover you do dedicate some time on a good amount of time on relationships and how they change and also caregivers. How, how can caregivers balance taking care of themselves while taking care of someone else? Yeah, it's so, it's such, such an important question because so many of us are, are caregivers already and more and more of us are going to be. I think the number is something like 40 million Americans are routinely in the caregiving mode with someone um, in their life. Um, It's work that's often sort of not happening in an obvious way, often happening at home. And so so it's a role we're all going to find ourselves, you know, we're going to find ourselves in one way or another. Um, And just to call out, part of what makes it difficult is there isn't. It is kind of a hidden, hidden work. It can be thankless work. Um, we don't really have policies in place that protect us in our jobs. So there's a lot of absenteeism from work. As a caregiver, you might lose out on a lot of income. 
or what's called presenteeism. You can you may be present at work. You may, in other words, physically you show up, but your performance suffers. And I mean, there are all sorts of ways that caregiving can consume you and chip away at the rest of life. So the, I, part of the answer to this issue is we need to talk about this fact. This is another fact and make space for it so that the act of caregiving isn't so destructive to the rest of our lives. This is another thing we should need to consider very normal and, if anything, admirable. We should all be so lucky to care for someone. Um, but how do we make space for that? So back to your question, well, part of that is acknowledging um, that you are a person too. And I've watched caregivers get consumed because there really is, it's a bottomless pit, especially in the, towards in terminal illness. There's no turning it around. The patient, your loved one, is not necessarily going to quote unquote get better. Their needs may only go up. And so as a human being faced with an endless need on, and, 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 and you being on the hook to tend to it, well, one of the things that's so important is like you just got to find a way to get to make peace with all the things that you're not. You just you have to find realistic expectations for yourself. Um, I think part of the demoralization of caregiving is that you feel like a failure if your loved one is getting sicker and sicker. Um, so we need to make sure to be very careful to frame things appropriately. Um, and so caregivers need to find a way to do their best and do what they can and let go of the rest and forgive themselves the rest. And part of the job of a good caregiver in this note, and so one of the main skills is learning to sit with people, learning to sit with suffering that you cannot change. Because there's the practical aspects of caregiving, but there's this sort of emotional, psychological thing, which is really at the heart of it. Is good caregiving means sort of non-abandonment. You may have limitations of what you can actually do, but that's not the same thing as limiting what you feel for someone. So your ability to sit and hold someone's hand who is in pain despite your best efforts, that's, that's a very hard thing to do and a really important thing to do. Otherwise, you're going to be beating yourself up unnecessarily. So I would say cultivate that skill of sitting with suffering that you can't change. Um, and of course, there are little sort of quotidian things too. You've got to take care of yourself. One thing you need to realize, our language sort of sets this up like you're a caregiver or a care receiver. You're either sick or you're well. I think those are, that's just our language at work. It's not the reality. We're all, again, we're all in some spectrum of vulnerability, of life, of illness, et cetera, of limitation. So one thing that's really, I think, very, very useful is for caregivers and patients to see how they're linked in a sort of a reciprocal loop. The caregiver's job is not to just give, 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 and give, and not, you know, just, and then the patient's job is not just take, take, take. When it's done well, there's a real exchange happening. So caregivers, you need to look for things you can learn, things you can take away from the situation, ways you can grow, something that you can actually benefit from. That's not selfish. That's, that's you taking care of yourself. And if you see the caregiver and care receiver see themselves as linked in this reciprocal loop, well, there's no such thing as selfless or selfish. Like one of the main jobs of a caregiver, because, because people are depending on you, it's even more incumbent on you to take good care of yourself. And that may mean going to the gym, going outside, getting a meal, saying, no, I can't do that X, Y, or Z thing. You know, coming to terms with your limitations and taking care of yourself is really job one. 
not selfish, that's you being a good caregiver. Because if you're spent, you can't do much. So um, I think that's a huge, huge piece. Seeing the reciprocity between giving and receiving care and opening that up so it's not such a bottomless, thankless, a never-ending uh, chore. That's beautiful. Um, what are some, on, a, on another practical note, what are some steps or requirements others don't know they must complete after the death of a loved one? Hmm. Well, the first thing you got to, you got to, so the death needs to be made official. And in this, in our legal system, you're not dead until a doctor pronounces you as such. And there are some laws to allow nurses, hospice nurses, to also pronounce death, etc. But for the most part at this point, in most states, it, a doctor needs to verify that you are in fact dead. So um, that's one thing that needs to happen. It's very easily done when you're on hospice or in a facility or in a hospital. There are people around to do that. There's a process around this. Um, so one thing is getting sort of the declaration of the death and then getting the death certificate uh, from the, the signed death certificate from the doctor to the funeral home. So that, that's a clerical piece of, that needs to happen to sort of make things official and get the ball rolling otherwise. So um, probably if you're at home alone and you're uh, with a death, uh, someone you're with dies, uh, whether that death was expected or not, um, a good place to start if there's no social worker, no team involved, a good place to start is call the funeral home a local funeral home, and they can help guide you how to get the death certificate and what sort of paperwork you'll need, et cetera. That's really the only thing you need to do pretty quickly after death, I'd say in the first day or so. That needs to happen. Otherwise, the rest, the memorial, the funeral service, what you're going to do with the remains, that can take a little bit of a slower boat. Um, so first things first get that death made official, call the funeral home, get the death certificate going, and then take a big, big, big breath. Um, I will say one more point on that, especially if you're at home with a loved one, it can be very cathartic to sit with the body for a period of time. I mean, it may not be your cup of tea, but sometimes it's really nice to just not call 911 for an hour or two, not call anybody just sit there with, the, with your loved one. Let, let this sink in. It can be a very profound and precious time. You don't need to rush into just about anything. Like I say, that first day, you definitely need to get the death certificate, the death official, and get that rolling. But otherwise, take a deep breath. There are no more emergencies now. That's an important point, too. Um, there's so much more we could talk about, and there's so much more in the book a Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. So, BJ, before we wrap up, any final thoughts, anything else you want to say? I could go on forever talking to you, but, <laughs> um, but I just want, I'll just leave it there. Anything, anything else you'd like to add? Oh, thanks, Roxanne. No, I think we've covered, we've covered a lot. We've talked about a lot of different things. I mean, I will just say, I mean, I, we love, we're proud of this book. We hope folks get it. Uh, most importantly, we hope folks gain, find it useful. Um, but I guess what I want to say, like, you know, 
the, tr the trouble with sort of laying down a pathway for dealing with all these things is that we might accidentally suggest that there's a right way to die or a wrong way to die. And I want anyone listening to really understand um, there isn't a right or a wrong way to do this. There are relatively easier ways to go about things to make it easier on yourself or perhaps more meaningful. But don't let, my, uh, don't let us, by assertion with this book or others, sort of suggest to you that you're, that you're failing or succeeding at doing this. This is, you're not, death is the one thing you will not fail. So, I mean, I think part, one answer is the book is all about reassurance. We've been dying for a long time. You will figure, you will find a way. There's a lot of room for reassurance, and if you do nothing on these checklists, that's okay too. That'll work. But our systems, in particular our healthcare system, have, in, have inserted all sorts of counterintuitive moments along the way, and it does it can get pretty treacherous and certainly counterintuitive. And because of that fact, there are some things to think about. Um, so those are in the book too. But again, so I'm sort of talking on both sides of my mouth. Reassurance that, hey, you're not going to screw this up, even if you take zero bits of our advice. But there are ways to make it easier on yourself, and hopefully you'll find that uh, you'll hopefully you find the book useful in those ways. That's it. Thank you. I, I know that the book is touching many, many lives. And again, thank you so much for writing it, and thanks for spending your time today. Thank you, Roxanne. Such a pleasure talking to you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, you too. DJ.